Freedom is the most valuable and coveted treasure that exists on the planet and in life if you don't have it. But if you do, then freedom is the most taken for granted and squandered thing that exists in all of the planet. And I open the Bible study that way and sow that thought into your mind here at the beginning because the theme of tonight's study is on the subject of freedom, spiritual freedom. We're in Judges chapter 6. It's been about 200 years since the death of Joshua. Israel is in bondage and in slavery, this time to the Midianites, And it's their fifth time in a cycle of sin and salvation as they are, again, in a new generation, turning their back on the Lord. The Midianites have invaded the land. And they come every harvest time and they rob the increase of all of Israel's labor. They labor and toil and sweat all year. And at harvest time, the Midianites come in like locusts. And they take all of the increase of the earth and spoil the Israelites completely, leaving them with nothing, devouring 100% of their income. The rest of the Bible refers to this season in Israel's history as the yoke of Midian. Israel was under a yoke to their enemies, meaning that they weren't free in the way that God intended them to be free, but rather they were under the direct bondage and pull of their enemies being forced to do what they wouldn't want to, and existing only for the sake of enriching their enemies. And so the testimony of these three chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8, is how God raised up Gideon to break the yoke of the Midianites in the lives of his people uh, and for his glory. Now the Israelites were a people that were made to be free. They aren't at this season because of sin, And because of that sin, they're separated from God, who is the source of freedom. Apart from God, there is no true freedom. They're feeling the cruelty and the weight of the sin and of the bondage, and so they cry out to God. They come to a place of desperation, and they ask for God's help. And thus the story is of how God restores the freedom to this nation that has lost it because of their sin. Now, when most people, especially in today's world, think of sin or bondage or slavery, for the most part, we picture forced labor, or we picture the bars of a prison. Or or for slavery, we picture perhaps a plantation where people are forced to till the ground and work the soil and do that for just their daily food and to live under very harsh conditions. But the bondage of the believer or the bondage of the person, at least in our society, is much different than that. It isn't a bondage of bars or of literal slavery where we're forced to labor. Rather, the bondage that we face is a spiritual bondage. It's a bondage that comes from our behaviors. We let things take a hold and a grip in our lives, and they rob us of our freedom to be who we're called to be and made to be, and to do things that we don't want to do. And so we become in bondage, a slave to our behaviors and the things that we do. And that's even worse in some ways than a literal slavery or a literal bondage. And here's why. Because if you're in spiritual bondage, then by all appearances outwardly, you look like you're free. But in reality, you're not. You're in bondage to the things that you are doing. 
So what does this story teach us about God's freedom, not just what he did for them historically, but what he longs to do in the lives of people today to bring us from bondage, slavery, into freedom and liberty? We pick up in chapter 6, verse 33, as preparations are now being made for the battle. We've seen the conversion and call of Gideon. We've seen God prepare and raise him up for what he's going to do. And now we come to our first point, if you're taking notes, concerning freedom, and that is this. That our freedom, as God's people, is His will. It is God's will that we be a free people. Look with me at verse 33. It says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and then he blew the trumpet. And the Abiezrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. I call this three-verse segment here in the narrative, Gideon's moment of clarity and reality. See, 24 hours before this point, Gideon was the least prominent man in his family, who also was the least prominent family in his tribe, Manasseh, who, Manasseh, was one of the least prominent tribes in the nation that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So the least prominent man in the family, who was the least prominent family in in Manasseh, who was the least prominent tribe in the nation, that's who he was, and we found him hiding from the Midianite enemies and threshing wheat in a wine press in a place where he could not be seen. It's really threshing wheat in a wine press a lot like mowing the grass with a pair of hair-cutting scissors. That's what that's like. It doesn't make any sense to do that at all, but that's what he's doing, and that's where we met him. Now, that was 24 hours before this point. Now, he's standing on a hill in front of 32,000 men whose eyes are all upon him, waiting to see what's going to happen. A sword in one hand and a trumpet on the other. He's made enemies of all of his father's house, including his immediate neighborhood. And against him, on the other side of the battle lines, are gathered at least 120,000 Midianites gathered together with Amalekites and Ishmaelites. So all eyes are on him, and all of a sudden, Gideon comes to a point where he wakes up in a sense, and he says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How in the world did I get here from where I was just a day ago? I think a lot of us can relate to what Gideon is going through at this point in his life. How many of us were just living our lives, trying to survive, just going along, doing our daily thing? But God interrupts, and he gets a hold of our lives. The lights are turned on, and he interrupts the course of our progression, and we're introduced to who he is. We're face-to-face with the fact of his existence, and the truth of his word becomes alive to us. Our life quickly begins to radically change. We share what God's doing in our life with those close to us, our family members, our friends, our immediate co-workers, and they look at us like we're crazy. They say, you've been brainwashed, you're out of your mind, what are you doing? A few days later, we realize that our problems aren't dissolving. They're actually augmented and magnified. 
The, the sins of our past are screaming at us to be recommitted. Our flesh inside is screaming out and saying, indulge me, indulge me. And we find that the attacks of the enemy are intensified in our lives. And we come to this same sentiment that we see Gideon feeling here and we say, wait a minute, how did I get here? My life is totally different and it's happened so fast. I know I can relate. I remember feeling that very way. And so Gideon, seeing these 32,000 men behind him, facing the 120 enemies, 120,000 enemies in front of him, he puts the brakes on for a second, and he has a moment where he turns the whole thing over to God. And notice what happens in verse 36. This is the famous fleece passage. It says, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece, but there was dew on all the ground. Gideon is essentially asking God the question, God, are you really in this? Is this really your will? Because it appears that the odds are really stacked in my favor. And it couldn't be possible, God, that everything that's happened in my life in the past day has just been some crazy coincidence of some spiritual apparition. Or maybe it has something to do with the food that I ate. Is this really real, God, what's happening right now? And so he asks God, would you do me a favor? I'm going to lay this fleece out tonight. And let it be that the fleece overnight would absorb all of the dew, but that the ground would stay dry. And God does it. But then Gideon, being the rational man that he was, like you and I so often, he says, okay, but that could happen, you know, just by coincidence. So God, can we flip it around just one more day? Let it be that there's dew on all the ground, but let the fleece be dry. And God honors the request of Gideon again the second time, and the ground is wet, but the fleece is now dry. And so God answers Gideon's prayer. Now, this is a famous passage, and it's become a famous phrase. People say all the time, I'm just going to lay a fleece out before the Lord on this and see if he's really in it. But there's a controversy and a debate that also surrounds this passage, and that is in the question of, was Gideon right in doing this? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6.16 that you shall not test the Lord. That we walk by faith and not by sight, and therefore when God speaks, we're to just respond and we're not to ask God for a sign. Jesus said it's an evil and a perverse generation that seeks for a sign. So was Gideon wrong in this in asking God for a sign by testing God? Or was Gideon not testing God, but rather was he proving whether or not this is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 um, Verse, small handwriting, uh, verse 21 says, prove all things. So, if we're to prove all things, 
but we're not supposed to test the Lord. What is Gideon doing here? I believe that Gideon is honestly seeking to prove the will of God in an extreme and intense situation as he finds himself there in it. Now, how do we know that that's what he's doing, that he's proving the word, the, the, the will of God here? And you can use this as a guideline as you seek God's will in your own life. First of all, Gideon is not looking for an excuse to act contrary to the revealed word of God. In other words, he's not asking God to give him a sign that will be confirmation to do something that he already knows he's not supposed to do. Sometimes people lay out fleeces before the Lord, asking God if they can do something that they already know they're not supposed to do. God, should I move in with this person that I'm not married to? I'm just going to lay a fleece out before you. And if, Lord, they call me and ask me if I'm willing, then I will see that as a sign from you that you're in this. See, you're in the wrong there because you're acting contrary to the will of God. God, should I rob this bank? If so, then let it be that when I put this note in the drawer, that the teller just complies and puts what I'm demanding in the bag and let it come out. She did it. God, you're in this. No, we never are to act contrary to what God has already said. If he's revealed it in his word, and we're asking God to do it even though we know it's wrong, then we're wrong. Gideon's not doing that here. God's spoken and Gideon wants confirmation. Second of all, he's not limiting God by putting amounts or a time frame on the answer. In other words, Gideon doesn't say, God, if this is your will, then let it be that when I wring out the fleece, there's exactly four ounces of water in it. Or let it be that by 2 a.m. this happens. He doesn't put any limitation on God. He simply asks for something that God can do. God, we say, if you want me to buy that car, then let me receive my refund check by 2 p.m. on Tuesday. Well, it might be that God's got it coming at 4 p.m. on Friday, but yet it's still his will for you to move. And so when we put limitations on the amounts or the time frame of how God's going to answer us, we're limiting him. Gideon doesn't do that here. Number three is that his venture in doing this, in seeking God's will, what he's doing is not selfishly motivated. In other words, Gideon's about to risk his life and go into an intense battle and do something extremely difficult, and there's very little in it for him. It's all for the glory of God. And that's a good test for you and I. That thing that you're seeking God for, who's it for? Who's the beneficiary of what you're asking? Is it for God's glory? When Gideon asks, it is. And number four, reason why this is accepted by God and answered by God, and here's the biggest one of all, is that Gideon is absolutely serious about doing the will of God. In other words, he's not laying the fleece out in curiosity to see if God's going to say yes, and then he's going to make a decision if he's going to obey. Rather, he's all in. Whatever God says, Gideon is going to do. If God complies and gives the go, Gideon's going to go. And that's a huge thing. Many of us, we ask God for a sign or to lead us or for confirmation but we haven't yet decided if we're going to obey the thing that he says or what he wants. When we are in a place where we're set to obey, we're going to do what God says, I believe that God will honor when we ask for confirmation. This isn't the first time in the Bible that God's done something like this. The servant of Abraham, Eliezer, asked God for a sign. He said, God, if you've prospered this journey in the will and the desire of Abraham, 
then let it be that when I ask a woman to water, to get me some water from the well, that she offers to water the camels also. And by that, I will know that that's the woman you've chosen. And God heard the prayer, answered, and it was Rebecca who said, not only will I draw water for you, but also for your camels. And Eliezer rejoiced. When David was with Jonathan and he wanted to go up and fight against a garrison of the Philistines, he prayed to God and he said, God, if you want us to go up and fight those men up there and just the two of us will obtain a victory over that whole troop, then let it be that when we reveal ourselves to them, that they say, come up here. And we'll show you a thing or two. But if they say to us, you stay there, and we're going to come and show you a thing or two, then we'll get out of here and we'll know that it's not of you. And so they reveal themselves. They say, here we are. And the men say, come up here and we'll show you a thing or two. And David and Jonathan said, yeah, all right. God's in it. And they went up and God delivered the whole garrison of the Philistines into their hands. When Isaiah the prophet went to Hezekiah and said, Hezekiah, you're going to get 15 more years that you've asked for. Hezekiah says, what will be the sign that what you're saying to me will come to pass? And Isaiah said, you choose. Do you want the sundial to move ahead 10 degrees? Or would you like it to go backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah said, well, I can easily explain away a forward motion of the sundial. Let it move back 10 degrees. And God moved the sundial back. He literally moved time back 10 degrees on the sundial as a sign for Hezekiah. So God will honor when we ask him out of a pure and integral heart because we want what he wants and we want to do his will. God will give us confirmation when we find ourselves in desperate situations needing wisdom from him. What's the point? Here's the point. is that Gideon proves through this that this battle the victory that's coming, that it is the will of God. That God's will for his people in this time is that they be set free from the yoke and the bondage of the Midianites. The second thing that we see as we move into chapter 7 is that our freedom, the freedom of God's people, is always for his glory. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. In other words, God comes to Gideon now after performing the sign with the fleece and saying, Gideon, I'm with you. I'm going to deliver you, but there's a small problem. You have too many men in your army. If I give you the victory with 32,000 men, those men are going to claim the victory for themselves. They're going to say, wow, we're tough. We're strong. We were able to defeat 120,000 men, and they're going to take the glory for themselves. And God says, no, no, no. I'm the one that's giving you this victory, and so therefore, I'm the one that's going to get the glory. Now, just to give you some perspective for a moment, when the children of Israel went to battle against Ai back in the days of Joshua, they had 30,000 men in the ambush alone that was encamped behind the city. They had another 5,000 men who were blocking off the escape route between Ai and Bethel, 
And then there was the main contingency, a number that we don't have, that was going to come in and besiege the city from the front. They were fighting against 12,000 men. The enemy was 12,000 against Israel, who was 35,000 in ambush and an unknown number in the frontal attack. Now, flip it around. You have 120,000 of the enemy and only 32,000 of Israel. I would think that the odds are already in favor of the enemies and that God would get the glory. But God says no. There's too many men with you, and they'll take the glory for themselves. Often, in order for God to get the glory in a situation where he's working in the lives of his people, he has to make the situation and the circumstances impossible by human standards. We face things, we go through problems and trials where we come to a point where we say, God, this is impossible. There's absolutely no way that this can work out. I'm toast. I'm going to sink under this one. This is absolute tragedy. Now, some people, some Christians, when they get into that situation, they become despondent. They get depressed. They begin to think, well, this is it. I'm done. It's over. Other Christians get excited. Because they say, oh, well, if God is making it this hard... And if the odds are stacked this much against me, then he must be in it. And he's got a plan. He's going to do something great. They get excited. We don't know what Gideon did, but we know here what happens next is that the circumstances become literally impossible. Two rounds of discharge are about to come. Verse 3. He says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. A simple word that Gideon makes to the crowd gathered there. He says, is anybody a little timid about this? You're fearful, you're afraid. And they're maybe hoping for some encouragement, a word from the Lord or something. And they raise their hand and say, yeah, this doesn't look good for us. And he says, you know what? Go home. You don't have to fight. You're honorably discharged from this battle. Your name's not going to be recorded. No one's going to know what your vote was. But God says you're free to go home. He's, he doesn't want to use you in this particular battle. Now, fear is not necessarily a sign that God is not with these people. But it is a sign that his love hasn't been perfected in their lives. The Bible says that Perfect love casts out all fear. And that whoever fears has not been made perfect in God's love. See, when you realize who God is and his love has been made alive to you, it's impossible for you to fear even the most dire circumstances. But if you do have that fear, all it means is that you're not mature yet. That you haven't yet experienced all that God has for you. Now that, that encourages me. Because oftentimes I get frightful when the odds, the deck is stacked against me. So God dismisses these people because their hearts aren't courageous. Their hearts aren't in the battle. And so he says, you're free to go home. Now getting at this point, I'm sure he's getting nervous. Now there's only 10,000 of us against 120,000 of them. Okay, God. You're really going to have to work. And so God says, I'm going to work, Gideon. Here we go. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. 
Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. And so God says, I want to test them. I want to see where they're at. Here's the test, verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. In other words, there's going to be two different scenes, two different postures that you're going to find the people in when they drink water. Some of the people are going to cup the water with their hands and they're going to bring the water to their mouth and drink the water out of their mouth. The other group is going to get down on their hands and knees, shove their head in the water and slurp it like a straw and just drink right out of the brook. And I want you to take note of how each man drinks and then I want you to separate those two companies by themselves. And so it says in verse 6, that the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So 9,700 of these men shoved their face in the water and just drink slurp right out of the stream. And only 300 cup with their hands and bring the water to their mouth. And here's what God says, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. God says that he's going to test the men that have signed up for battle, that have passed the first round, that they are not fearful, that they have courage and faith to believe in God. But yet there's one more thing that God wants to see, and so he's going to test them. It's interesting to me that many of us think that the testing of God in our lives is going to be some extraordinary, huge thing where we're going to be faced with the temptation of our life or the challenge of our life or the difficulty of our life. But notice that the test that God brings into the lives of these people is in something as ordinary as drinking water. I don't think there's anything more ordinary in life than drinking water. I mean, we drink water every day, every single one of us. And God says, I'm going to separate who I want and who I don't want based upon the way that they do something as ordinary as drinking water. You say, well, why would this have something, anything to do with how God can use these people in the battle? Is it just pure coincidence? It could go one way or the other and God just knew what would happen? Or is there more to it? I believe that the way any person behaves or conducts themselves in the ordinary, invisible things of life says a lot about the way they are with the invisible and spiritual things in life. The test that proves whether or not God can use our lives in the way that He wants is not how we do in the big things. It's how we do in the little things. Who are we when we are just doing the ordinary things of daily life? Are we engaged in spiritual things? Do we have perspective into the things of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God? Are we aware of the reality of heaven and hell and our place in it? Or or are we just kind of going along, living our lives? And, you know, when we come to church, we're in church. But when we're not in church, we're not in church. Which is it? 
These men who lap with their hands, they're engaged. They're aware that an ambush could come at any time. They're not willing to come off their guard and get down low and separate themselves from what's going on around them, but rather they're, they're watching, they're focused. They realize it could happen at any moment, whatever it is, and I'm going to be ready for it no matter what. And God says, these are the people that I want to use. Some of the people, they're drinking and they're aware. The others, their mentality is, what battle? I'm thirsty. The most important tests that we face in our lives are not the big things, but it's the ordinary things. What do you do with your time when it's your time, free time? What do you do with your appetites, with your money, with your thought life? Those are the things that reveal what's going on inside your heart. It's not the big things. How do you serve when you're teaching a Sunday school class? Or what do you like when you know people are watching you spiritually? But rather, who are we when we're just by ourselves? That's the measure of what we really are. And that's the true testing of God. Who are we in the invisible moment? Well, God has 300 people now. And here's the thing. They're not the strongest. They're not the smartest. And they're not the most gifted. But here's what they are. They're the most courageous the most believing, the most committed, and obviously the most dependent upon God. Now, lest you feel discouraged at this point and say, well, God can never use me, I want you to see what happens next. Notice verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained those 300 men Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east, the Ishmaelites, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come there, or come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent, and it struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. It's interesting to me that Gideon here is fearful. Gideon is the one that's lacking courage. He's the one that's not sure if this actually can go down. Can we actually, with 300 men, subvert an army of over 100,000. And God says, not angrily, not seeking to squash or disqualify him, God says, Gideon, if you're afraid, I want you to go down into the camp. And I'm going to do something there that's going to encourage you. 
And God encourages Gideon. He moves a Midianite to have a dream and another Midianite to interpret it and allow Gideon to hear that interpretation, granting to him the boldness he would need to know for sure now that God is really in this. Do you realize the power that encouragement has in a life? Encouragement is a huge, huge thing. One of the things I love about serving here in the church is Pastor Bobby's gift of encouragement. He has the ability to make Eeyore do somersaults. I don't know if you've ever experienced that yourself, but it's just a supernatural gift that God has given him. And I've learned from that the power and the importance of what it is to encourage someone in the Lord. The ability to speak positively into their life in such a way that they are strengthened by it and emboldened and then able to carry on and continue doing the will of God. They just opened the rail trail that connects the, you know, the old passage of the Dutchess County Rail Trail now all the way to the Hudson River. And, you know, we love that as a family, you know. So oftentimes I'll, I'll come home from work here and I'll grab the kids and we'll go there and we'll go jogging. We're training for the turkey trot, you know. And so we'll all run. And my kids are excellent runners. It used to be that I was training them. Now they train me. And it, that's really true. Like they, they finish ahead of me. You know, they're gone. But there's something that I've observed. You know, when you run together as a family, there's the three of them, Sarah, Rocky, and Hosanna, and then myself, and, and we, we jog along. And there's always many, many people on the trail, riding bikes, walking, jogging themselves. And every time they see us all running together, the three kids and me, they, they always smile, and, and they'll say to the kids, they'll say, all right, go get them. You guys are doing a great job. And I've watched this. This is what happens. Every time that happens, the kids pick up their speed. They, they just go. And, and they're not doing it. They're not like trying to show off. They're not, they, they don't even know that they're doing it. But it's the power of encouragement. There's something that happens that when you're encouraged, it strengthens you. And it's a gift that's in the Bible. And God encourages Gideon here. He calls us to encourage one another. Encourage people. Speak positive things into their life. Let them know that God is with them, that God loves them, that he's for them, and that he's going to bless them. There's something so strengthening about it. We see God doing it for Gideon here, and now Gideon's prepared, and here comes the battle, verse 16. It's that then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers, or empty clay vessels, and torches, lamps, burning lamps, inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp, and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands were blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out 
and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerahiah as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. What we see here in, in this thing is we see the plan. There are three ingredients and there are three instructions that are given to him. The ingredients are the trumpet, the pitcher, the clay pot, and the lamp. The instructions are, number one, Gideon says, I want you to do exactly as I do. Follow my lead. Number two, I want you to surround the enemy. Let these three companies of a hundred men each encircle and encamp around the enemy. And then number three, I want you to blow the trumpet and break the pitcher when you see that I do the same. Now we look at this and we say, what in the world is going on here? Well, first of all, practically, it's an ingenious plan on God's behalf. Because what they do is they go to these people in the middle of the night, the second watch of the night, when everybody's deeply in slumber, not even the early risers are stirring at this time. And they completely encircle the camp silently, and they're just waiting there. They have pitchers in their hand with fired torches inside, but they're concealed. And they have the trumpets in the other, and as they come around the camp, Gideon is the first to go. And he blows the trumpet, and then he breaks the pitcher. The trumpet is the alarm call. And as 300 trumpets are sounded, can you imagine? Imagine if 300 men were surrounding your bed, and they all blew their trumpet right in the middle of the night. What would you do? So they're immediately disconfitted. They're filled with confusion. There's chaos. There's alarm. There's morning fog. There's all these crazy things going on inside of them as they hear these trumpets. And then as they just scramble and get themselves outside of their tents to see what in the world is going on, immediately they hear the sound of the pitchers breaking. And all of a sudden, light appears all the way around encircling the camp. And they have no idea that there's only 300 men in the ambush. They think that for every light, it's a full company of soldiers. So there could be a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand men behind each one of those pitchers. And so they hear the trumpet, they see the light, and then they hear the cry. A simultaneous shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the people shout, they cry, they blow the trumpets again, and God puts a confusion amongst the Midianites in the darkness. They don't even know who's there among them, and they start killing each other off. You can't tell the difference between friend or foe. There's no time to even discern or light and, and see what's happening. And so God brilliantly, practically confuses the Midianites and brings destruction upon themselves. We don't even read about the Israelites at this point raising a hand to slay a single enemy of Israel. They stand right in their places and watch while these people just kill themselves. But there's a spiritual aspect to this as well you say that's great but what does this have to do with bondage and the believer what does this have to do with our being free and freedom being the work of god within our lives spiritually this is a picture of god working in our lives how does god work in our lives well first of all the light 
in this picture is a picture of the presence and person of God. The Bible says that God is light, that in him is no darkness at all. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says that in him, that is in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of men. And fire and light in the Bible always speak of the presence, the person, and the power of God. The light is God in the picture. The pitcher, the clay pot, the vessel that the light is carried in, is a picture, a symbol of your body, my body, our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says this, For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots. In the NIV, it actually says, in jars of clay. Our bodies being likened unto the jars of clay, the clay pots. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What power or strength or value is there in a clay pot? Not much at all. All it is is dirt that's been shaped into a, you know, a, a particular form and hardened, and it serves a particular purpose. But it has very little value. And it's fragile and can easily be broken. The value isn't the pot. The value is always what's inside. When it comes to this lamp, it's the light that's inside. And so you see the picture beginning to form. The light representing God is inside the picture that represents us. The third aspect of this is that the pots were to be emptied. If you look in your Bible there at verse 16, he said, make sure you take empty pots. It means that the life that's going to be filled with the light of God must be empty of all other things. There must be an undivided heart. It must be poured out so that it can be filled completely with that light. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 24, Jesus spoke these words. He said, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now he applies what he means by that in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. In other words, the teaching that Jesus is giving here is about a divided heart or divided affections. You can't divide your affections between God and some other passion or affection in your life and expect that the light of God is going to fill it. The vessel must be emptied and fully set apart and consecrated for God if the light of God is going to reflect out of it in the way that the vessel was designed for. It's a picture of an undivided heart. A life that's empty of all other things and completely consecrated to God. It's important that it was empty. Number four is that the vessel was then to be broken. The light couldn't be seen as long as the vessel was whole. But it was in the breaking of the vessel that the light would be seen. And the picture is this. It represents our weakness. Our weakness is the only thing that can expose the light that's on the inside. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, again, the Apostle Paul writes and he says this. He says, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I'll speak the truth. But, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, we're not designed to have it all together. It isn't in our perfection that the light of God's glory is seen by those around us. It's in our reflection. It's through our weaknesses, through the cracks. It's the areas of our life where we've been crushed and where we don't have it all together. That's where the light comes out. And thus the picture is completed here that the, 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 the vessel is to be broken so that the light can be exposed. And then finally, the trumpet. The trumpet represents total dependence upon God. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, it says this. It says, When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. The trumpet was a sign given from God to the people that when they blew it, it was a declaration of their total dependence and need for him to operate on their behalf. That they're not able to defeat the enemy in and of themselves, but it's going to take a work of God. And so the picture is completed. The whole thing speaks of God's work in our lives as he grows us and changes us and as we get closer to him. We're emptied of everything of our old life. We're filled with the light of the knowledge of God. His Spirit fills our life. Jesus comes and lives inside of us. He breaks us and lets our weakness expose His strength and His power working through our lives. And as we grow in dependence upon Him, trusting Him to do what needs to be done within our lives, He shows up and supernaturally brings freedom in our situation. It speaks of God working in and through us. Well, what's the outcome of this uh, back in Judges chapter 7 in verse 23. It says, And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from the beginning or from the watering places and as far as Beth Berah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb 
to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Now, there's one more aspect to the freedom of God that we don't see in tonight's study. We'll see it next week as we get into chapter 8. Tonight we saw that freedom is the will of God, number one. The freedom is unto the glory of God, number two. And number three, that freedom is the work of God. Only God can bring freedom in the life of a believer. But number four, and what you'll see if you read ahead into chapter 8, is that freedom must be bound to God. And that's just a little bit of a teaser for you to read ahead and think through as as we move forward in this study. But as we close, the prophet Isaiah twice in his book, refers to this season of Israel's history as the people of God being under the yoke of Midian. We never see that picture painted here in the text, but we see it later on in the Old Testament that God refers to this as a yoke being placed upon them. A yoke is something that would be used to control the behavior of of an ox or a bull so that you could use it for service on your farm or for your land or a beast of burden to carry your things. And here's how that would work. When a bull or an ox was young, you would put a junior yoke upon that bull. When it was weak, when it was still under your physical strength and control, and you would break it. You know, you you hear about a broken ox or an unbroken ox. You would break it by placing a yoke on that ox or on that bull at an early age, and thus you would learn how to control it, and the ox would learn how to be controlled. Now, one day, you know that that ox is going to grow to a point where it exceeds your strength. That it has the power to disobey what you're saying and to do whatever it wants. It doesn't have to go where you pull it. 